that the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. The 23rd Psalm. It's such a well-known and well-loved psalm. I think for those of us of British descent, it's almost part of our cultural fabric. It's part of who we are. And as we hear or say that psalm, I suspect that for many of us it conjures up visions of a really nice, idyllic scene, (coughs) able to rest in eternity with Jesus. It's easy to romanticise that psalm. But I suspect that these images bear little resemblance to how people of the Middle East would have or still would hear that psalm. I think because we romanticise it, we miss what is described here, which is the hard and sometimes brutal life, hard and brutal and dangerous reality for all shepherds. As I said last week, I've been reading a book by Kenneth Bailey on the Good Shepherd tradition. Kenneth Bailey is a Bible scholar who's lived for most of his life, lived and worked for most of his life in the Middle East. And he's actually had men in his classes who have worked as the family shepherds. And so when looking at some of the shepherd passages, he's asked them to reflect on those from their experience as shepherds. It's also meant that he has thought about and has accessed translations and commentaries in both Syriac, which, as I said last week, is one of the three major languages of the early church. Syriac is the language of the Middle East, of the Middle Eastern church. So uh, it was the language that the church used of the people, the church of the people who lived in the same culture that the Old Testament writers and the New Testament writers. And, um, more recently, he's been able to access translations and commentaries in Arabic. So what have I learned from his reflections on all of this? There are two kinds of flocks that operate in the Middle East that have done for many thousands of years. A lot of poorer rural families have a very small flock that they keep to provide wool for winter. Now these flocks traditionally would have been kept in the house. Uh, if you go to the shepherd's, um, shepherd's field outside of Bethlehem, uh, they have a little cave there which shows you what um, a shepherd's house would have been like in the time of Jesus. The front half of the cave was where the shepherds, the people, the families lived and the back half of the cave was where uh, the sheep and the cow and the donkey were kept. And they were kept there for protection from predators and thieves, but also during winter, those extra animals provided a lot of extra heat in those caves, so it helped keep you warm. So it was a kind of win-win situation. Now, those flocks were small, and it wouldn't have been a particularly good use of time, and still isn't a good use of time for one person to look after such a small flock. And so uh, groups of families, probably the wider family, Uh, would then put their flocks together and one son would be nominated as the shepherd. They traditionally didn't get a choice about that. They were just nominated. Bailey had people in his class who had been so nominated by their families, you will be the shepherd. They weren't particularly happy about that, but that's how life rolled. So every morning, that shepherd would take his little flock and then would go around the other families 
collect up all the other little flocks and head off out into the countryside. There are, however, larger flocks that are owned by the wealthier families, and these are kept in closures outside of the house, but still attached to the house. They have a high wall, traditionally, around them, uh, with thorns sticking out the top, and nowadays glass, to deter predators and thieves. And they would have a door that opened from the inside. And again, every morning, the shepherds would open the door, and they would lead the sheep out. Now, the important thing is that the shepherds led the sheep. They never drove them, as they do in this country, with sheepdogs and things behind. The shepherd walked in the front, leading them. Now, just imagine the scene then. We kind of think, oh, well, that's nice, a little flock of sheep going down the narrow streets of a village and out into the countryside. Well, there wouldn't have been one. There would have been many flocks of sheep going down those streets, all merged in together with the shepherds kind of all in the mingling in the midst of it. And Bailey actually has accounts of that from not too many years ago, somebody in a rural village watching all these flocks of sheep going out and wondering what will happen when they get out into the countryside. How will they separate out the sheep? It's a big question. Well, the sheep just knew whose shepherd was theirs. How did they know? Because each shepherd had a distinct little tune or song that they sang. So they'd either have a little uh, flute, handmade flute that they'd play a little tune on, or they'd have a song, or actually a lot of them just use a common little phrase, hoo-hoo-ta-ta. And the thing that the sheep can notice is that each of us has a different timber to our voice, and they recognise the timber of the voice, and they will follow that shepherd, and no other shepherd And if they can't hear that shepherd, they get really frantic. They kind of make this piteous noise and run around banging their heads on things. So knowing their shepherd is very important. Now the shepherd then leads the sheep out into the countryside and what he's looking for is a pasture with green grass and still water. Why still water? Well, I don't know if this is true of all sheep, but Middle Eastern sheep won't drink out of running water. It has to be still. So that's when it says in the 23rd Psalm, he leads me to green pastures and still waters. That's exactly the job description of a shepherd. That's what they're supposed to do. Lead sheep to green grass, still waters, so the sheep can drink. And at the end of the day, then they would take them home again. The thing would cycle on the next day. It's all good for spring. It's easy to find such pastures, but as summer and then autumn and winter rolls on, those pastures become much harder to find and the shepherds are forced to go much further away from home. And that means two things. First, they have to go through more dangerous terrain. And typically, some of that dangerous terrain will be narrow valleys where the sheep and the shepherd are forced to walk in single line. And that means the sheep at the back are in peril because thieves or predators will wait for the shepherd to be well into the valley and then come up from behind and steal or take that sheep. With the shepherd far away, unable to easily come back and defend that sheep. So those narrow valleys were dangerous places. They were also good places for ambushes, so they were dangerous places for the shepherd as well. And there were times when the shepherd would have to stay out overnight. They were too far away from home. And so typically a shepherd in that situation will find a kind of dip and then we'll try to build an enclosure with the rocks 
around that, putting thorns in the top to discourage thieves and predators, light a fire in the entranceway, and then would sleep across the entranceway, becoming the door. So when Jesus says, I am the door, that's just a common shepherd phrase. That's what shepherds became, the door across these little enclosures that kept the sheep during the night. So the role of the shepherd then is to lead the shepherd to food and water, still water, and to defend the sheep against thieves and predators like lions and wolves and bears. Now the shepherd had two aids to help him do that. He had his staff, well we know what that looks like because that's what a bishop's crook is modelled on. The crook was so that they could lean down banks and hop the leg of a sheep and drag it back up onto the, onto the path where they should be. And also was good for comforting the sheep and, and it was a walking staff. And then the rod, which we often think was another word for staff. But actually a rod was a completely different thing. It looked a little bit like a mace. It was basically a club with a hole in a metal driven in the end of it that they would use to beat thieves and predators. We kind of think that they used slingshots mostly, but actually the pictures from that period make it pretty clear this rod was what they used. The rod was also useful because it was shorter. At the end of the day, the shepherd would put the rod out rather than the staff and force the sheep to walk under. Well, they just naturally walked under the, the rod. They knew that's what they did at the end of the day. And that meant the shepherd could then count them one by one to ensure that he still had all the sheep. So the rod then was the means of protection and the means that the sheep knew that they would be noticed at the end of the day if they were lost. Now, it was a disaster if a sheep was lost and a, sh a search would always be mounted. And Bailey has a number of accounts of uh, all-night searches because the villagers can, can tell when a sheep is lost. They can see the shepherds and their family would light little lights and go out. Uh, you can see the lights shining out in the, around the countryside on the hills and they could hear the call of the shepherd and his family. Now, unlike during the day when the shepherd can walk along the rutted tracks and, and uh, it's reasonably straightforward, in searching for a sheep, the shepherds would then scramble all over the hills, across rocks and through thorns and bushes. And that may actually take a long time, all night on occasions. So that when the sheep is found, if it is found, the shepherd himself will be scratched and grazed and bruised and worn out from all the extra labour. Implied in the search is always there is a price to be paid and the shepherd is mostly willing to pay that price. And when the sheep is found, because it is a good occasion, there's always a celebration in the village. So, reading the 23rd Psalm in light of that, the first thing we note is that this doesn't describe some idyllic scene, but actually the psalm is using the harsh everyday experience of a shepherd to describe the psalmist's experience of God. In the harsh reality of everyday life, God, the shepherd, is present. Now Bailey uses the tradition that suggests that David wrote all the psalms, he didn't, but probably wrote some of them, to suggest that David is the writer of this psalm. 
Now, the importance of that is that while we might again romanticise David and say what a wonderful fellow he was, uh, he had a few character flaws, like uh, he was a little bit inclined to spy women and to think, well, she looks quite good, I'll go and, uh, go and make myself known to her in the biblical sense. Uh, on at least one occasion, he then had a husband who was a faithful servant sent off to war and put in a position where he was killed so that he could take his wife. Um, nowadays that would get you put in prison. Uh, he wasn't very good with his family. He ended up in a civil war with his son, uh, and his son was killed in that civil war. So he had a few character flaws. There's a, a lot not to like about David. But despite all that, David is still able to say, the Lord is my, is my shepherd. What's the importance of that? It means that God is trustworthy even when he, David, is not trustworthy. Not only did God lead David every day, this is a daily journey, not an end-of-life, once-in-a-lifetime idyllic scene that the 23rd Psalm is describing, but when he went astray, when his life seemed in peril, he was able to say, you revive my spirit, you, guard, you guide me in right pathways for your name's sake. Now, because that's been translated out of Hebrew, we kind of miss a lot of what's at play in that phrase. The Hebrew word that is translated as revive is shuv. And it has in it the meaning of seeking out and restoring. It's, it's a really good word to describe what a shepherd does when a shepherd notices the sheep is lost. Shuv is what they do. They go out, they search, they seek the sheep, they then bring the sheep back in to where the sheep should be. So revive is much more than just kind of waving a handkerchief across your face, which you might read if you read this. Now Kenneth Bailey says that this is a clear allusion to David being the lost or bad sheep. You only need to be sought out if you have gone astray. So David is saying, I have gone astray, God seeks me out, God searches for me, God restores me back amongst the flock. When David does not listen, when David does not follow the shepherd's tune, God the shepherd has come in person, has willingly searched for and rescued David the psalmist, and has willingly paid the price for that search. And then David said, he leads me again on right paths. And he does this not because of anything David has done. David is a bad sheep. But because that is the nature of God. For your name's sake means that is your nature. You do that because that is who you are. And then we come to verse 5, where the shepherd imagery is lost, and we come to the celebration at the recovery of the lost sheep. Now what is really interesting about this is the feminine imagery that is implied here. Because we don't live in that culture, we completely miss that it is women who prepare the food, women who cook, women who spread tables. Never men, not even slave men. Always, always women. So when God is addressed in the second person, 
you, God is addressed using the image of a woman. You spread a table before me. That's a woman's role. Now, some of you might be thinking that's just some crazy modernist, feminist reading of this. But actually he quotes two commentators who wrote in Syriac, so out of the same culture. One from the 11th century and one from the 12th century. One from Armenia, one from Baghdad. Who also draw attention to this and the importance of this. That God is being described in feminine terms. God is beyond gender. And then in the last verse we have this amazing phrase. Surely your goodness and mercy will follow me. Again, we kind of lose the essence of this in translation. The Hebrew word here is much less about being followed and more about being pursued. The psalmist is saying we are pursued by God's goodness and mercy. No matter what we do. God's goodness and mercy is hunting us down to the ends of our lives. We cannot escape it. We are being pursued by God's goodness and mercy. And then the last line, and I will dwell. The word dwell is again shuv, which means I will be sought out. I will be returned. I will be restored to the house of God forever. This is not about an idyllic place we end up. The psalm is about life's journey. And on that journey, God's nature is to lead us. And when we do not heed the voice of God, God's nature is to pursue us and to restore us, no matter what we do. Powerful images. And I guess that adds to our reading of the psalm. What I hadn't realised until I'd read Kenneth Bailey's book, however, is this psalm is more than a nice psalm. It's actually a really important psalm because it established a significant tradition within Scripture. It's no accident that today when we read from John 10 that we also read from Psalm 23. I always thought it was an accident. I thought, oh, how nice is that? But actually... Psalm 23 establishes the Good Shepherd tradition within Scripture. John 10 is part of that tradition. A number of passages that take the 23rd Psalm and expand it and reinterpret it and reconfigure it in light of the new situation that they found. This Psalm establishes a number of themes that are developed and added to Expanding the psalm, for example, from the one sheep of David to a flock representing all the people of God. And so we have Jeremiah 23, Ezekiel 34, Zechariah 10, all of which knowingly use the 23rd psalm as their starting point and reinterpret that psalm to new situations. Establishing and adding to that tradition, the tradition of God the Good Shepherd, now, over time, that tradition of Good Shepherd became attached to the hopes for the coming Messiah when God the Shepherd will act with compassion, when God the Shepherd will seek out and restore Shuv, the people of God. And this tradition, Jesus 
clearly picks up and uses. So we have that tradition in the stories in Luke 10 of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost sons. Have you ever thought about the story of the lost coin and the lost sons in terms of the 23rd Psalm? It's part of the same tradition. Matthew 18, the lost sheep, clearly. Mark 6, the beheading of of John the Baptist by Herod, and then the uh, feeding of the 4,000, I think it is in Mark, in the first uh, feeding story. And finally, here in John 10, from verses 1 to 18, of which we heard the last eight verses. Each of these reinterpretations intensify that tradition, and in a real sense reach their climax in the reading we heard this morning. Now, you're all probably feeling a little worried at this point, because you're thinking, my goodness me, we've only just got to the Gospel and we've already been going for a long time. And we could spend a lot of time talking about John's Gospel, because, but I'm not going to. I'm just going to make a few brief points. We'll come back to it another year. This Gospel passage this morning is where John most clearly applies this tradition of God the Good Shepherd to himself. We heard it this morning. I am the Good Shepherd. So when people heard that, they knew about this tradition. They knew its connection with the hope for the Messiah. And so when they heard him say that, it wasn't just some nice pastoral saying. They knew that he was saying, I am the fulfillment of that tradition. Everything that you are hoping for that's held in that tradition, I am he. I am that shepherd. In me, all is restored. God the shepherd has come. God the shepherd is acting with compassion. God the shepherd is seeking out and restoring Shuv, the people of Israel. It is a powerful statement of the fulfillment of hopes that go back at least 600 years. But it is reinterpreted and reconfigured for his time. Jesus is saying that all the hopes held in the 23rd Psalm are being lived out before their eyes, before our eyes. We hear Jesus make these bold statements, having yesterday remembered those who fought in all the wars that New Zealand has fought in, particularly remembering World War I and the landings at Gallipoli. And as we prepare to remember our own battle, when New Zealanders fought to preserve their freedom and way of life and land from an invading British force. And like the 23rd Psalm, it is very easy to romanticise the events of Gallipoli and World War I and Gate Par, to turn them into something that they were not, to forget the true nature of both wars and the battles fought. And it is easy to forget the cost paid by those who went and those who stayed, and those who objected to this war, who refused to fight in this war. It is easy to romanticise those whose decisions led to this conflict and the motivations behind it, and the decisions made after this conflict. Like the 23rd Psalm, it is important to keep it real. And as we commemorate these events, I wonder... Where are we in the story? Are we the lost sheep, the bad sheep, the good sheep, 
Are we the shepherd? And if we're a shepherd, are we a good shepherd or a bad shepherd or a hired hand? Where is Jesus the good shepherd in all that we remember yesterday and on Wednesday? And as we remember, what do the words of Jesus mean for us? I am that shepherd. In me all is restored. God the shepherd has come. God the shepherd is acting with compassion. God the shepherd is seeking out and restoring the people of God here before you. In the face of these tragic events, which cost people of this land so dearly, what does it mean for us to say, The Lord is my shepherd, we shall not want. As people who know they are pursued by God's goodness and peace, what might we say to both these events? So let's reflect on that for a moment.